If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey everyone, as you know, we are taking the month of January off to recharge our batteries and get a head start on the podcast for our third year. That being said, we didn't want to leave our listeners with absolutely no new content. As fans of true crime podcasts ourselves, we know how hard missing your favorite podcasts when they go on breaks can be. So we've decided to release our latest Patreon exclusive episode for our listeners to check out and to take this opportunity to announce that we now only have one tier on Patreon. We know that the economic situation is tight for many of us right now, and we wanted to ensure our Patreon is as accessible as possible. So we've made all of our perks available for $5 a month. Our Patreon subscribers will get access to exclusive bonus episodes, early access to episodes, episodes will be ad-free, as well as access to our archived episodes. You can subscribe today at patreon.com slash tntcpod. All right, let's get into our Patreon-exclusive episode, Death at YVR, the story of Robert Jakansky. Hello, everyone, and welcome to your January 2023 Patreon Champion Members bonus episode of True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We are really looking forward to the new year and, as always, look forward to bringing you new content. So with that being said, let's get into tonight's bonus episode. So tonight we are talking about the 2007 death of a 40-year-old man named Robert Jakansky. Robert was in the process of immigrating to Canada from Poland, but he died after arriving at Vancouver International Airport. In fact, he barely made it outside of the secured baggage area. Robert's death was an incredibly tragic mark on the province of British Columbia. It resulted in criminal trials, inquiries, protocol changes, and a review on the use of conducted energy weapons, which are commonly known as tasers. 
We put this episode together using publicly available news articles and the official 470-page Braidwood Commission on the death of Robert Jakansky. We also pulled some details from the book Broken and Blamed by author and journalist Kurt Petrovich. This book, Broken and Blamed, is one of the most detailed accounts of what transpired before, during, and after this event. As an additional content warning, this episode recounts the death of a man who was being detained by four RCMP officers. So to truly understand this story, you have to understand Vancouver International Airport, or as it's commonly known, YVR. YVR is the crown jewel and a point of pride for Vancouverites and British Columbians. The airport finds itself ranked among the top airports in North America and around the world. This is no small task, as YVR sees about 13 million people per year travel through its gates. In fact, YVR brought in design teams to create a calming atmosphere. There are eye-catching water features, giant windows, high ceilings, indigenous art displays, and even aquariums. Even the fluorescent lighting overhead is designed to mimic logs floating down the Fraser River. The airport attempts to be a welcoming place with a team of volunteers known as Greencoats who assist guests as they maneuver through the terminals and gates. YVR Airport Authority has been so successful that they have been asked to consult on many other North American and international airports to share their success. Surveillance at the airport is high with many CCTV cameras and there is also a designated security team there. There are also CATSA agents, Canadian Border Services, U.S. Border Agents. YVR is also policed by the RCMP, uh, which is based out of Richmond in their detachment there. However, there is a handful of RCMP officers who are stationed at what is considered a small sub-detachment in the main airport terminal. In 2007, Vancouver was just three years away from welcoming the world for the 2010 Winter Olympics, and YVR was getting ready to show the world what an inviting gateway to British Columbia looked like. This fact makes this case all the more confusing that an international passenger can get off of a flight and be dead several hours later. Robert Jakansky was born on April 15, 1967, in Bilawa, Poland. His mother, Zofia, was just 20 years old when she got married to Robert's father, and she gave birth to Robert a year later. The couple moved from Bilawa to Gliwice, a somber industrial town located in southern Poland of approximately 200,000 people. Zofia's marriage ended when Robert was 14 years old when his father left. Life became incredibly difficult for Zofia and her son Robert. The two struggled to make ends meet while living in a rundown apartment in a town known for coal, chemical, and steel production. For Zofia and Robert, merely surviving was their best option. Prosperity by any definition was out of their reach. As a teen, Robert began to get into trouble. He was arrested several times for theft and violence that was often tied to his use of alcohol. Robert was educated in trades in order to secure a career in mining. However, he struggled to find consistent work. As a result, he did odd jobs in construction, often doing day labor as a painter. For Zofia, things became more dire the older she got. She was working as a janitor, and she felt that a life in Poland as she got older would get worse. She confided in a friend that she was concerned. The friend suggested that Zofia reach out to a Polish man who was living in Canada named Peter. Peter, 
who was now in his 70s, was looking for a wife and was living in Kamloops, British Columbia. Marrying Peter would relieve Zofia of her many future financial concerns. So she made the decision to marry Peter and move to Kamloops, leaving her son Robert behind in Poland. Robert was an adult at this time. Several years later, Peter was placed into a nursing home. While Zofia was in Kamloops, life was hard back home in Poland for Robert. He struggled to find work. One medical examiner report showed that he had signs of heart issues due to his alcohol misuse. However, those close to him say that he was merely a social drinker. As an adult, Robert did find joy. He was very into geography and learning about other countries. He also participated in a community garden and played bridge and chess. Robert and Zofia connected frequently using discount long-distance phone cards. Zofia grew concerned about Robert, so she asked Peter if they could sponsor Robert into Canada. First, as a permanent resident, and then hopefully as a Canadian citizen. Peter agreed. In the summer of 2007, Zofia traveled to Poland for a vacation. She proposed the idea of immigrating to Canada to Robert, and he agreed. According to friends close to Robert, he was pretty effervescent about the idea of living in Canada. He referred to it as a place where there is milk and honey. Canada represented a new chapter, a new life, new opportunities, and a reconnection with his mother. He had a collection of atlases and dreamed of traveling around Canada. He also felt that after he learned English, which he did not speak, he would be able to use his trade skills and open a contracting business of his own. According to those close to Robert, he was excited for this trip, but nervous to fly. He had never flown before. He had traveled to some neighboring countries by bus or car, but he had never been on a long international flight. Apparently, he was worried about turbulence. Due to his nervousness to fly, he had trouble sleeping in the 48 hours leading up to his flight. It's important to note here that he had already rescheduled the trip once because he was too nervous to fly. At about 4 a.m. on October 13, 2007, Robert's friend arrived to take him to the airport. When he arrived, he found Robert on the floor of his apartment, hugging a portable radiator and having a panic attack. Eventually, Robert calmed down and he got into the car. During the ride to the airport, Robert held onto a small bucket and he vomited several times on the way to the airport because of nerves. Robert called his mother while he was on his way to the airport and after speaking with her, he was able to calm down. Robert arrived at the airport in Poland and boarded the first of two flights that he would take that day. At 6.20 a.m., he departed on Lufthansa Airlines flight 3297 from Katowice, Poland, and arrived in Frankfurt, Germany about an hour later. Poland and Germany are both nine hours ahead of Vancouver. On this flight to Frankfurt, the chief purser noticed that there was one extra passenger in the business class section. Apparently, Robert did not know that he was expected to sit in an assigned seat. Eventually, he was moved back to his economy seat. When the flight attendant spoke with Robert, he smelled alcohol on his breath. He informed Robert that he would not be able to drink for the rest of the flight, and Robert agreed to this. An hour later, he arrived in Frankfurt Airport, where he would board his connection flight to Vancouver. Robert left Frankfurt Airport around midday for his 10-hour flight to Vancouver aboard Condor Air. The Condor Air flight was only a quarter full, so passengers were moving around the cabin before takeoff to create their own spaces. Robert moved from row 34 up to row 18. 
A flight attendant noticed that he was sweating and had glassy appearing eyes, but stated that he appeared as a man who was embarking on a journey and leaving something behind, namely his homeland. While on this flight, Robert ate, slept, and watched a movie. There is no evidence presented that he drank any alcohol on this flight. Robert Jakansky's flight arrived at Vancouver International Airport around 3 p.m. Vancouver time. Keep in mind for Robert, this would have been around midnight in Poland, and he had not slept well in the days leading up to flying, and he had started his day at 4 a.m. in Poland. Zofia traveled from Kamloops to meet Robert at the airport. She did not trust her own abilities to drive from Kamloops, so instead, Zofia paid her friend Richard $120 to act as a chauffeur for the four-hour drive from Kamloops to YVR. Sophia and her friend Richard arrived at YVR around noon, about three hours before Robert's flight landed. She had made arrangements with Robert to meet him at the baggage carousel when he arrived. This was an unfortunate mistake. The baggage carousel at the international arrivals is in a secured area that cannot be accessed by the general public. Instead, the public are meant to wait in the arrivals reception area. This area is separated from the baggage area by glass walls and an automated glass door. The public are meant to wait in this area until travelers come through the double doors and walk along a partitioned-off walkway into the main reception area. Sophia did not know this, and neither did Robert. Meanwhile, inside of the terminal, Robert disembarked his flight at around 3.15 p.m., Upon disembarking his flight, he would have to move along to the primary inspection areas for Canada Customs and Immigration. This is normal for all flights entering Canada. After the primary inspection, travelers move to the baggage carousels and then secondary inspection if necessary. Then they are free to leave the customs hall and exit to the arrivals meeting area outside of the double glass doors. On the busiest days, this whole process might take an hour or two, but most of the time, it's about 30 to 45 minutes. Robert Jakansky would remain in this area for nine hours. By about 3.30 p.m., most of the other Condor Air passengers had already made their way through the primary inspection line. Robert showed up last, several minutes after everyone else. He was asked by a customer service representative to fill out a customs declaration form, he became confused and was passed along to a customs officer who gave him a translation book to help him along with the form. At 4.09 p.m., Robert approached another customs officer at her booth. She scanned his passport and directed him into the baggage claim area. At 4.45, a rep working for the airline took Robert's luggage off of Carousel 22 as he had not picked it up yet. She placed it on the floor beside the carousel. At 5.30, an hour and a half after he had been directed into the baggage claim area, it had still not been claimed, so she placed it behind the Lufthansa desk. The rep did inquire as to Robert's location, and according to customs officers, he had passed through the primary inspection area, but no one could locate him. Border services officers later reviewed all of the video footage between 4 p.m. on October 13th and 1.30 a.m. on October 14th, 2007. These were recorded on 16 closed-circuit cameras in the secure customs hall area and the public meeting area. They identified 17 video segments showing Robert Dukansky. 
There are four segments between 4.05 p.m. and 4.11 p.m. showing Robert Chikansky passing through the primary inspection line, arriving near the secondary immigration, and then walking back towards the primary inspection line and checking a baggage monitor screen near the primary inspection line. Now, the next video segments of Robert begin at 9.25 p.m., five hours later. None of the video cameras recorded Robert Jakansky between 4.11 p.m. and 9.25 p.m., a period of five hours and 14 minutes. And it's unclear where Robert Jakansky was during this five-hour window in a very closed-off, heavily monitored place. Now, he could have been in a restroom or perhaps sleeping on a floor out of the range of a camera, but no one knows. Nobody walked by him sleeping. Nobody remembers interacting with him during that five-hour period. Meanwhile, outside in the arrivals area, Sophia and Richard are becoming more and more concerned. They tried a couple of times to ask people at various desks to help them. Sadly, on more than one occasion, they were asking people who could not help them at all. These were sales reps who rent cars or hotel rooms or offer tourist or visitor information. But eventually, they found someone who could page Robert. However, the page could only be sent in the public side of the airport, not in the secured area where Robert was. So they had him paged, but he wouldn't be able to hear it. Then they were directed down a hallway to the immigration office. But at first, they didn't go to the immigration office. They instead continued to wait. Zofia became more and more distressed as the hours went on, and they did their best to explain to people that Robert had never flown before and that he did not speak English and that they needed to find him. But it seemed that nobody could help them. Eventually, Richard made his way to the immigration office down a hallway by the food court. When he arrived, there was a locked door and a phone. He picked up the phone and explained the situation. The agent on the other end of the line stated that there was no one fitting Robert's description in the secondary screening area. Although she did have the ability to page passengers inside of the secure customs area, she chose not to. Richard offered to give the officer Mr. Jakansky's name so that she could check to see whether he had arrived. She said that she did not want his name because for confidentiality reasons, they were not allowed to say who comes off of a flight. She suggested that he phone Poland to find out whether the passenger had boarded the flight. She told him that in all certainty, there was no landed immigrant from Poland there and that they might as well go home. Again, this all took place over a phone. Richard and Zofia felt that the airport personnel made him feel disregarded and not important. They were convinced that Robert was not at the airport and sometime after 10 p.m., they left YVR and drove back to Kamloops, intending to return the next day. At around 10.30 p.m., Robert Jakansky reappeared inside of the Customs Hall area. No one knows where he was for the previous hours inside of the Customs Hall. Most of the people who interacted with Robert had varied observations. Some say he appeared intoxicated, others stated that he was not intoxicated, but most agreed that he did appear disheveled, sweaty, and disoriented. While the language barrier created confusion, Robert never became aggressive with anyone he interacted with. Robert Jakansky was then taken over to the secondary screening area as he was immigrating to Canada on a permanent resident card. 
He was given several glasses of water, and all of his suitcases were then returned to him. The process at the secondary screening area usually takes about 10 minutes for a permanent resident. However, this process took about an hour and 50 minutes as the officers struggled to find an interpreter to help with the situation. Several of the officers and staff in the customs hall remarked how shocked they were that Robert was still there after having landed at 3 p.m. Inside the customs hall, officers made attempts to page Zofia in the terminal, but by then she had already left. They also attempted to call her on the phone, but she did not answer as her battery had run out. Zofia did return the phone call at 2 a.m., but by then, it would be too late. At 12.40, Robert Jakansky was now officially a landed immigrant into Canada. The immigration officer congratulated him and welcomed him to Canada. He rolled his suitcases on a trolley and made his way towards the double glass doors, which would take him out of the secure area and into the public reception area. At 12.54 a.m., he is seen on camera making his way through the automated glass doors. They close behind him, cutting him off from the secured area. He is seen rolling his cart around and did not find Zofia. He was visibly concerned, so he made his way back to the glass doors, but he could not regain entry into the secured area. He began to bang on the glass doors. As Robert was banging on the double doors, he had his suitcases arranged around him, almost like a barricade. A chauffeur approached him from behind. The chauffeur was picking up a client, and he had a swipe card that would grant him access into the secured area. He swiped his card, but Robert stood in his way when the doors opened and wouldn't let him enter. The chauffeur states, Look, you fucking asshole, I need to get through here. And he was right. In about five minutes, 300 passengers would be getting off of a Cathay Pacific flight from New York, including his own client. The chauffeur then enters into the secure area through the glass doors. Robert follows him. Robert then makes a barrier with his suitcases inside of the secure area. However, he is so close to the door sensors that they continue to flap open and closed. Robert begins to grab items from a nearby information booth to assemble a small barricade. This included a small folding table, which he held up against his chest with the legs out towards anyone who came near him. He began yelling in Polish, I will trash this office, fuck off. No one understood him, but people were starting to gather. Some of the onlookers offered to find security who were not on the scene yet. One woman steps forward to help. She speaks multiple languages and feels that she can de-escalate the situation. She attempts to communicate with Robert in Italian, Turkish, and international sign language. But this seems to make him angry. He yells in Polish, For fuck's sakes, I will sue you and everyone else. Fine, fine, we are in a different country. He then trails off. The woman moves towards him with her hands out. Her body language is one of a helpful person who means no harm. She gestures that he should come out of the doors, he yells again in Polish, while swinging the table around. I will smash this entire desk. I will smash this desk. Leave me alone, everybody. Go away, for fuck's sake. At this point, Robert begins to throw things at the glass wall between the two areas. He throws a keyboard, a monitor, and a folding table. The security guard has arrived by now, but during violent incidents, they are required to simply observe and take notes. Several 911 calls are placed by witnesses. On one call, the operator can hear things crashing against the glass. Robert is described to the 911 operator as a drunk man in his 40s, throwing chairs and suitcases attempting to break the glass. 
This information creates urgency for the 911 operator who dispatches the local RCMP. At the YVR RCMP sub-detachment, three officers are eating their lunch when the call comes in. Those officers are Constables Jerry Brian Rundle, Bill Bentley, and Quezzy Millington. Their supervisor, Corporal Monty Robinson, was in a different area of the airport at the time, but he heard the chatter on the radio. At 1.26 a.m., the call came in from dispatch and was answered by Constable Quezzy Millington, who had been on the force for just two years. The dispatcher stated, Intoxicated male throwing baggage around level two. Millington responds, Two three, indicating who he is and that he is on his way. The dispatcher responds, copy 2-3, we don't have much information, it came from ops. Report of a 55-year-old man at the arrivals reception throwing luggage around. He is non-white, dark hair, white coat. All officers, including Supervisor Corporal Monty Robinson, made their way to the incident in their own vehicles, arriving about a minute later. On their way, they received updates. These updates were coming from witnesses on the line with 911 dispatchers. Unfortunately, these updates were not entirely factual, but more emotional. They described the incident as being much more violent than it actually was. In one update, the dispatcher described chairs being thrown through windows. It was not discussed by the officers, but Millington would be the lead investigator on this call. Corporal Monty Robinson would be the supervisor, and Rundle and Bentley would assist. On Corporal Millington's belt was a conducted energy weapon, also known as a taser. There were only two of them at the detachment, and they were signed out on a first-come, first-served basis. The weapons were new to the detachment. Only a month earlier, they received training on how to use the weapon. During the training, the RCMP members were told that tasers were safer to use on people than pepper spray or batons. In two years, Constable Quezzy Millington had not used any of the weapons on his belt outside of training exercises. This included his gun, pepper spray, baton, and now a conducted energy weapon. This weapon can be used in two ways. The first is by shooting out darts on wires that dig into the skin and deliver an electric charge to the subject. The other way is by placing the weapon without the dart cartridge up against a subject's skin and deploying the weapon more like a stun gun or cattle prod. Millington, Robinson, Rundell, and Bentley all assembled in the arrivals lounge and made their way towards Robert Jakansky, who was creating a disturbance behind the glass partition. They did not have any discussions. A witness yelled to the officers, he doesn't understand English, he speaks Russian. The officers approached Robert Jakansky and formed a horseshoe shape in front of him. One of the other officers asked Millington if he had a taser, to which Millington responded, yes. As Constable Millington approached, he saw Jakansky on the secure side walking back and forth, pacing. He was not breaking anything or making threatening gestures, and Constable Millington saw no signs of broken glass or any indication that luggage had been thrown around. He did observe that there were some chairs near Jakansky that were somewhat blocking the doorway. That observation, plus the yelling he had heard, satisfied him that there was some accuracy to the initial dispatch information. Constable Millington said that Jakansky was agitated. He was sweating and breathing heavily and his eyes were really wide. He suspected that Mr. Jakansky was under the influence of a drug or alcohol, but he did not smell any alcohol. 
Constable Bentley attempted to calm Robert by signaling with his hands, chest high, and palms down. He said, hello, sir. Another stated, how's it going, bud? Millington asked Robert for identification or a passport. He mimed a pen and paper with his hands to show ID. Robert leaned towards one of his suitcases, but was told by Corporal Monty Robinson to not do that. Robert then turned away, throwing his hands in the air, and walked towards an information desk. Corporal Robinson pointed to the desk as if to direct Robert in that direction. Robert pushed some items off the desk and then picked up a stapler. He turned towards the officers with the stapler chest height in one hand, and then with his other hand, he was making a closed fist. At that moment, Quasi Millington deployed his taser in probe mode. The darts latched onto Robert Jakansky's chest. Millington held the trigger for six seconds, launching 50,000 volts of electricity into Robert. The training taught the RCMP officers that a subject would drop to the ground after being tased, but Robert did not drop. He appeared to be fighting through the current. However, he was yelling in pain. Millington was confused as the taser did not have the desired effect, so he deployed it in probe mode again, holding the trigger for five seconds. Robert dropped to the ground. At this point, the other officers moved in to secure Robert Jakansky, but he was now fighting, kicking, and struggling. Monty Robinson instructed Millington to deploy the taser again. Millington states that he heard clicking noises coming from the taser, which, according to his training, meant that it was not functioning properly. So he took the cartridge out and used the taser in stun mode at least two more times. Because Robert was still struggling with the officers, Millington states that he did not believe that the taser was working properly. Constable Millington stated that he deployed the weapon only four times. However, data downloaded from the taser showed a fifth deployment in push-stun mode for six seconds. Millington stated, I may have been holding the trigger, but it definitely was not in contact with him. Robert, at this point, was on his chest on the floor with his arms under him. The officers fought to bring his arms behind his back to cuff him. Once cuffed, they left him on the floor on his chest, having been tasered five times in a short period. A call was placed for an ambulance to attend the scene. Robert lay on the floor, placed into a partial recovery position, but remained handcuffed. Witnesses state that Robert began to turn blue. The emergency call was upgraded to a Code 3. Firefighters arrived on scene first. They observed on the scene that Robert was on the ground on his chest, cuffed behind his back with his head turned to the left. The officers stood meters away from him with one officer by himself and three standing with each other. No one was rendering aid to Robert. Firefighters noted that Robert's eyes were open and not moving. They asked to have him uncuffed to perform CPR, but Corporal Robinson refused, stating safety concerns. By now, regular and advanced life support paramedics had arrived. They now demanded that the handcuffs be taken off. The RCMP refused again, but eventually complied. The paramedics attempted to use a defibrillator, but the machine would not render a shock as there was no heartbeat detected by the machine. They attempted manual CPR for 25 minutes. Robert did not respond. At around 1.40 a.m. on October 14, 2007, Robert Jakansky was pronounced dead on the floor of the International Arrivals Lounge at Vancouver International Airport. 
The time between officers greeting Robert Jukansky and the taser being deployed was just 26 seconds. And just one hour earlier, he was congratulated and welcomed into Canada as a permanent resident. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We may never have known exactly what happened that day, but the majority of the event was caught on camera by a traveler who had decided to take a nap in the waiting area. Paul Pritchard had flown from Shenzhen, China to San Francisco and then to Vancouver. Due to a travel error, he missed his ferry to Vancouver Island that night, so he decided to sleep at the airport. He awoke to the sounds of a disturbance and pulled out his camcorder. He began recording Robert Jakansky from the point when the disturbance began all the way up to his death. When the officers realized that there was a civilian recording the event, they asked him to hand over his camera and memory card. They stated that they needed it for evidentiary purposes and that it would be returned to him within 48 hours. However, that changed. The next day, police told Pritchard they would not be returning his camera as promised. The RCMP investigators stated they kept the video longer than they anticipated in order to protect the integrity of the police investigation while they interviewed witnesses. Fearing a cover-up by the police, Pritchard engaged a lawyer to start legal proceedings to reclaim the recording. Once successful, Pritchard then sold the footage to three media outlets in November of 2007. The release of the video created a firestorm and revealed that the public-facing statements by the RCMP were not entirely factual. Millions of people around the world watched in horror at the scene of a 41-year-old man in distress being dogpiled and repeatedly tasered by four athletic police officers. Before the release of the video, Sergeant Pierre Lemaitre was the acting non-commissioned officer in charge of the strategic communications for the RCMP in British Columbia. He was the senior media relations officer for the entire province. After the media briefing at the airport, Sergeant Lemaitre prepared a written news release, which he posted on the RCMP's website. It states in part, At approximately 1.28 a.m., RCMP officers who work at YVR were called because a man in his 40s was in the international arrival area at Vancouver International Airport. He was sweating profusely, behaving irrationally, throwing chairs, tipping his luggage cart over, pounding on glass windows, and yelling. 
the security personnel at YVR attempted to have a dialogue with this man to no avail. He grabbed a computer off of a desk and threw it to the ground. They then called the RCMP. Three officers attempted to speak with the man who continued to ignore their commands. The male remained violent and agitated. When he attempted to grab something off of a desk, the RCMP member used the conducted energy weapon in order to immobilize the violent man. The man fell down but continued to flail and fight. The officers then held the man down on the ground and placed handcuffs on him. He continued to be combative, kicking, and screaming. He then became unconscious. His vital signs were monitored while waiting for the emergency medical personnel to arrive. EMS arrived and continued to monitor and provide aid to the male. Moments later, he died. On October 15th with CTV, Sergeant Lemaitre stated that chairs were flying and the violence was escalating and that Mr. Jakansky was combative. Then, on October 16th with CBC, in response to a witness's statement to the media that the conducted energy weapon had been deployed against Mr. Jakansky four times, Sergeant Lemaitre stated, I can go again on record and tell you that that is incorrect. He was tasered twice with the same conducted energy weapon. Later, when asked why he never corrected false information in the media once new information came to light, he stated, quote, It was not my place nor my role to either demand or to independently go to the media and correct my past statements. He would also state that he was consistently given wrong information by multiple members of the RCMP at different levels, including those in high-ranking positions and those who attended the scene. He would later be replaced as the media rep. In January of 2009, the government of British Columbia launched the Braidwood Inquiry. The purpose of the inquiry was to inquire into and report on the use of conducted energy weapons and to inquire into and report on the death of Mr. Jakansky. The inquiry spoke with witnesses, experts, airport workers, friends of Robert Jakansky, high-ranking RCMP officials, and medical examiners. The inquiry also spoke directly with the responding officers. The report was published on the 18th of June, 2010. During their testimony, the officers who responded to the scene at times gave evidence that was contradictory to the video as well as contradictory to their previous written statements and their notes from that night. They believed that they were dealing with a potentially violent man in a state of excited delirium. Robert's cause of death was argued by multiple expert witnesses. The official cause of death is cardiac arrhythmia but experts differed as to what exactly caused his death. Some pointed to a pre-existing heart condition due to alcoholism and that his manic behavior was the result of acute alcohol withdrawal, while others pointed out that his chest was directly hit by one of the taser darts, thus causing a heart attack. The report by forensic pathologist Dr. Charles Lee, who performed the autopsy, listed the principal cause of death as sudden death during restraint, with a contributory factor of chronic alcoholism. He stated that Robert's heart stopped as the result of the taser stuns and the struggle with the officers while they pinned him to the ground and cuffed him. The Braidwood report is 470 pages long, so we will attempt to quickly summarize it here with regards to the RCMP piece. The Braidwood report concluded that the RCMP officers were not justified in using the conducted energy weapon against Robert Jakansky and that the officers deliberately misled the investigation with their contradictory statements. The inquiry had no power to file charges, but it suggested that any charges would be up to the BC Crown Prosecutor. 
In 2008, before the inquiry, the BC Criminal Justice Branch made the decision not to charge the officers, stating that the use of force was justified. But that changed after the Braidwood inquiry. Eventually, there were charges connected to that night. All four responding officers were charged with perjury relating to their testimony at the inquiry. All four of those officers had separate trials. Constable Bentley was found not guilty of perjury in his trial. Constable Rundell was also found not guilty. The Crown appealed these decisions and lost. Constable Millington was found guilty. Specifically, the judge targeted Millington for stating that Robert remained standing while he was stunned the second time contradicting the video evidence. Constable Millington was sentenced to 30 months of incarceration. Corporal Robinson was also found guilty and sentenced to two years incarceration. Both officers appealed these decisions and lost. In the aftermath of this horrific event, there are stories of forgiveness, achievement, atonement, accountability, and sadly, more tragedy. RCMP Sergeant Pierre Lemaitre, the media spokesperson at the time of the incident, struggled with depression in the aftermath and spiraled. In July of 2013, Sergeant Lemaitre died by suicide in his Langley home. His wife gave testimony at the inquiry into his death. She stated that the RCMP had woefully mistreated Pierre. Many times he attempted to correct the misinformation that was presented in the public, but the RCMP did not allow him to do so. Instead, they made him a scapegoat for their own failings. She stated, quote, Pierre was very upset when he would come home after that. He was fighting to be able to correct the information, but his supervisors were stone-faced. There would be no correction. Sergeant Lemaitre also spoke out about sexual assault within the RCMP. He was demoted and transferred to the Langley Traffic Division and mocked within the force. He suffered deeply with anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder brought on by many traumatic events in his career. Experts stated that Lemaitre's post-traumatic stress disorder could happen not just through the traumatic events, but also through feeling unsupported at work. He was a 28-year veteran of the force. Being RCMP was a dream of his. His wife stated that he would put on his uniform with pride, but the force betrayed him. He was fed bad information by the RCMP that he told to the public, and then left vulnerable when the video came out. She also stated that even during his worst days, he never spoke to her of suicide, but that in the days leading up to his death, he had stockpiled heavy items at home like bags of dog food and water, items that he knew would be hard for his wife to deal with when he was gone. Corporal Monty Robinson, who was the supervisor that evening, has had a troubling road in the aftermath of the death of Robert Jakansky. In 2008, Robinson was involved in a car crash that resulted in the death of a 21-year-old man named Orion Hutchinson. Orion was riding his motorcycle when he was struck by Monty Robinson, who was driving a Jeep. Monty Robinson then drove home and consumed vodka, later returning to the scene of the crash. By then, Orion was dead, and the Delta police were on the scene. Monty admitted to drinking after the accident, but the court heard that he had consumed five beers before the accident at a party. They said he had utilized his police training to beat the impaired charge by consuming alcohol after the fact. For this, in 2012, Monty was convicted for obstruction of justice. He was sentenced to one year of house arrest and asked to write an apology letter 
to Orion's family. He was never charged in connection with Orion's death. Outside the court, Hutchinson's mother, Judith, dismissed the ordered apology letter as less than nothing and denounced the sentence as no more than the sort of punishment a child might get for bad behavior. Monty Robinson left the force in 2012. In 2016, he sued the RCMP, claiming breach of duty and threats from the RCMP to his legal funding during the perjury trial. Monty has also stated that the RCMP ruined his career with misinformation that led to post-traumatic stress disorder and disordered drinking. The status of this case is unknown at this time. Monty has taken to the media to raise awareness to his cause. He has also pointed out that the only two officers convicted of perjury were himself an indigenous officer and Quezzy Millington, a black officer. Meanwhile, the two white officers, Bentley and Rundle, were found not guilty. Quezzy Millington has been somewhat of a success story. He left the force and served his sentence. Much of his incarceration was spent in isolation for his own protection inside a prison. In 2019, he sued Canada's Attorney General and the province of British Columbia, claiming RCMP negligence and conduct that resulted in personal injury and damage, including PTSD, depression, and anxiety. His lawyers reached a successful settlement, which included a letter of recommendation to be pardoned. Quezzi now lives his life in Canada as a resiliency coach, and he helps people who face traumatic circumstances. In 2019, Constable Jerry Rundle filed a formal complaint to the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission for the RCMP, the body in charge of reviewing RCMP conduct. He stated, quote, rather than take responsibility for their flawed taser training and policy, they chose to redirect the blame and assisted to fabricate a crime on four of their own officers. Rundle also filed a lawsuit in 2016, claiming that the force's actions have cost him his career and his health. Constable Bill Bentley sued the Attorney General of Canada and the B.C. Justice Minister for negligence on June 10, 2016. As a result of the RCMP's negligence, the claim said, Bentley suffered, quote, permanent and irreparable harm, including extreme embarrassment, loss of reputation, extreme stress resulting in disabling psychological and physical injury, personal expense, and financial loss. And he will continue to suffer. In 2019, his case was settled. The details are not public. Afterwards, he stated, quote, I am relieved that I can now move on with my life after 12 years of devastation. In 2009, Zofia, Robert's mother, filed a lawsuit against the federal and provincial governments as well as the RCMP officers and the airport. On April 1st, 2010, Zofia received an official apology from the RCMP. Zofia accepted the apology and confirmed she had accepted a financial settlement as compensation for her son's death and that she would drop the lawsuit she filed. In November of 2019, Zofia passed away while visiting her family in Poland. She was 73 years old and suffered two strokes that led to her death. She was scheduled to return to Canada before her death, but didn't make it. Her funeral was held in Poland with friends and family present. She was a fierce advocate for her son. Night after night, she was on the news asking for answers in her son's death. We would like to thank you for joining us on this bonus episode. This was an incredibly tragic event that remains a dark memory for many Canadians. Stay tuned for a debrief episode where we more casually discuss this case with our own reactions. We will see you next month for a new Patreon release. Until then, 
take care of yourselves and each other. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.